Welcome to the online uh, weekend experience. This is basically the weekend sermon. We're glad that you guys are here with us. My name is Aiden, uh, one of the pastors here at the Norton Campus of Grace. If you're in the area, we'd love to meet up with you, answer any questions that you have. If you're someone who's been watching online, we would love um, to just answer any questions that you have. Shoot us an email. If you're listening to the podcast, glad that you're listening on your way to work, at work, whatever it is. We're glad that you're uh, with us. We've been going through uh, Galatians 5, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And it simply says this, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, that's patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so Jesus, today, as we just unpack what faithfulness looks like, I pray that you produce this in us. That we would keep in step with your Spirit as we're working, as we're raising kids, as we're navigating marriage and friendship and parents and siblings and bosses and money and all, all these things that we all deal with in different capacities. Lord, pray that we would keep in step with your spirit, that we wouldn't abide with what our emotions drive us towards or what our feelings tell us to do, but that first and foremost, that we keep in step with you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen. I'm glad that you are are with us today. I uh, uh, About a year or so, maybe a little bit longer, maybe two years, I don't know, what is time? I was uh, reading a book about fatherhood, about parenting specifically boys. I hadn't read a lot in that department, so I was reading this book called The Intentional Father. It's a great book. Uh, you should probably read it when your kids are like 12. I was reading it uh, when my kids was two, so a little premature. But raising boys, uh, it's crazy, right? I recently, my, my kids are going to Power Kids, and I find out that my one, my oldest, who's four and a half, he rats me out to the power kids workers. He tells them that dad falls asleep while he's watching them. He tells them that dad eats all of his snacks. Things that are true, right? Things that are true. But you navigate parenting, you have these stories. And I was, I was reading this book, and he was talking about this, this concept, this certain exercise as you're kind of planning on what kind of, how you want to parent your boys specifically. And he calls it the, the day your son leaves home exercise. And what he says, he says, picture that day your son's 18 and he's leaving your home. Maybe he's gap year, going to school, getting married, whatever. He's leaving your house. He says, picture that day. He says, what are all the, the skills you want him to have, the experiences you want him to have, the things about God that you want him to know are true and experience and pray through, all these things. When, when your son is 18, leaving the house, what are the things you have hoped to equip him with? Now, you and I both know there's no way to magically appear at that day today. There's no way that I can know that that day is going to go how I want it to go. All I can do is each step along the way commit myself to this final day, right? There's no way to get there any faster. All we have are the daily movements and moments that are the sum total of what that day will represent. We know this for life in a lot of ways, right? Maybe we're walking through chaos. Maybe we're walking through turmoil. And there's a lot of times, to use a football analogy that I stole from Dan because I don't know them on my own, is that we just want to throw these Hail Mary passes and hope that everything works out. Hope that when we get here, things go how we want them to go. But in reality... A game is won, we get to our destination by one down at a time, right? 
In such is the way that this, this fruit of faithfulness shows up in the life of a follower of Jesus. We cannot fast forward to a moment where we are deemed faithful. All we can do is each day, each moment, each decision, move towards the end where we look back. We look back and we see that we have been proven faithful. And kind of prepping for this week, I love Dan said something. I wrote it down. He said, faithfulness is measured by, by not by looking uh, through the windshield, but by looking in the rear view mirror. That we don't measure faithfulness by saying, I think I'm pretty faithful. We can't look at the, we have to look in the back. We have to get here and look back to see that we were proven faithful. Now, as we talk about faithfulness, it's something that sounds simple, something that almost sounds churchy. Maybe in some ways it sounds like a word that's too big to capture, right? Like patience, tangible, makes sense. I move towards that. Joy, tangible, I move towards that. Faithfulness kind of feels like a sandwich where you're not sure where to take the first bite, that it feels so big. Yet it's something that, that God says he wants the Spirit to produce in his followers, in his people. And I believe if we stop and we think about what faithfulness means and we contemplate how this shows up, I think we all long for this, right? We all long to be faithful people, to be people who are reliable, people who are trustworthy, who are loyal, committed, able to be counted on. We want to be the ones that who have kept the course, the ones who stayed true, the ones who didn't waver, right? We all long for that, right? First and foremost in our relationship with Jesus, but in our relationship with one another is we want to be faithful people. Think about this, that faithfulness almost feels like it's on the same branch as patience. Talked about this a few weeks ago. That to be faithful, it takes patience, right? It takes being able to move slowly towards that goal. But at the same time, patience involves being faithful, right? It's interesting, this, the, the Greek word for, for faithfulness is this word pistis, right? And it's, it's very closely related to the word for belief, pisteo comes from that same root word, that faithfulness and belief. And belief isn't just acknowledging that something is real, but belief is clinging to, adhering to, relying on, trusting in that faithfulness and belief go together. Because to be faithful, to be faithful is to be full of faith in something, right? To believe in something and to live in light of that thing, to be faithful to what I know is true, right? If I know that my marriage is the ultimate thing I want to invest in, if it's this is the most important relationship in my life, I, if, if I have faith, if I believe that, I want to be faithful to that, right? If I believe God is who he says he is, I, if I have faith in God, I want to be faithful to God, right? That I want to be faithful to what I know is true. Read this this week, and I think this sums up faithfulness so well, practically. It says, true to your word. That is a concise, clear definition of what it means to be a faithful person. He says that there is consistency between what you say and what you do, between what you believe and how you behave, between what you promise and what you perform. When we describe someone as faithful, whether this is we're describing ourselves or whether we're describing God, listen to this. When we describe someone as faithful, we're almost never referring to how much faith that person possesses, but how much faith others can place in that person. How much others can trust him or her to perform what they promise. I love that. Because if you think about this, faithfulness is a, is a, a relational term. It always happens in the context of relationship. I think about this, faithfulness 
It's always to somebody and through something. Think about this. We are always faithful to someone, right? Almost this, this promise is made. We're faithful to someone. It's a relational term. And whether we're, we're, when we talk about faithfulness, whether it's implicit or explicit, we are, we are making a promise to someone, right? If I'm faithful in my marriage, I'm faithful to my spouse, it's a promise that I make that I will, you will be the only one. Make a promise to someone, faithful to someone. And I'm faithful in my friendships. I promise to, to be there, to show up, to answer the phone when you call, to stay in your life. I'm faithful to you. I'm making a promise to you. If you're faithful to my word, like I promise to do what I will say. We, we talk about God's faithfulness. We're going to unpack this, that God is faithful to us, that he acts how he says he will act, and not how we think he should. But he's faithful to what he has said. Faithfulness is always to someone, but it's but it's through something else. Don't Is there anything else that we long for more than a friend who is going to be faithful, a faithful friend? And is there anything that that stings more than the words, I was unfaithful, right? Is faithfulness not what wedding vows, friendship bracelets, pinky promises, and blood oaths attempt to capture? You make that promise, so you attempt to be faithful, right? We're faithful to someone through something else. It's displayed through a situation. It's displayed through perseverance, right? I cannot just show up tomorrow and, and say, that person's faithful, right? I don't know. Faithfulness requires, requ- it requires being proven over the long haul through trials, through testing, through temptation, through time, right? I get to meet with a lot of young couples who are interested in getting married. And a lot of things that we talk about, right, is kind of looking towards faithfulness. How will we move through these seasons of struggle? How will we, one of the questions I ask couples is how are you going to fair proof your marriage, right? We talk about faithfulness, right? Meet with couples who are not even married yet. What's fun is I get to also talk to a lot of couples in the church who have been married for a long time, who have proven faithful to each other, right? Couples who are married for 50, 60, I have some friends that have been married for 68 years, right? And so I love getting to talk to couples on this end that are looking towards making this promise of being faithful than couples on this end who have been faithful. It's an interesting dichotomy to get to have this conversation, but I think about this for the sake of today. Why is faithfulness, why is this something that God longs to produce in his people? There's, there's so many things that are so important. Like, what does it look like? Why is this a value of God to produce in our lives? And I think of a couple simple things, and then we're going to jump in. I think faithfulness in the life of a believer that God wants to produce in us is important because he wants his people to be a reliable community for the good of the world. That if we, we look at the culture that we're in, there's so many trends, and there's so many turnovers of moral values, and there's these hot takes that are here today, gone tomorrow, that there's angry responses, that everything seems to be so transient and moving. And, and God wants his kingdom people, the people that represent him, to represent steadfastness. To kind of be uh, what one author calls a non-anxious presence. People that will show up and that will stay. And we've seen this throughout history, from the early church caring for the vulnerable to the Black Plague, when this plague was invading Europe, that it was Christians who cared for those who were infected, who set up hospitals, who cared for people in the midst of this. We saw this during COVID-19. Then it was, it was Christian organizations inflating hospitals in Central Park to care for those in COVID when the hospitals were overrun, that God wants his people to be faithful, to be consistent, that in an ever-changing world, God wants his people to be ever present. It's why he still has us here, right? But also this, to be good stewards of the faith. 
it's important that God's people, that if you and I, for followers of Jesus, that we are faithful, that we are true to our word, that we are reliable because the message of the gospel that we have been given, that we are called to faithfully steward and to faithfully hand down to the next generation. Paul's writing to his intern, Timothy. He says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. In the things you've heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses, he says, entrust to reliable people. Trust to, entrust to reliable, entrust to faithful people that this message that you've heard me preach, pass it down to people who are faithful, who are going to carry it with steadfastness and importance, the importance of this message. But ultimately, when God talks about faithfulness and what he wants to produce in us through his spirit, I think the main reason he wants to produce this in us is to communicate the beauty of God and his story. If nothing else, we have a faithful God. And sometimes that feels benign. It feels like just something that we throw out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Like it just feels kind of throwaway that God is faithful. But God is faithful. He's the definitions of faithful, of what that means, of what faithfulness looks like. And the reason that he wants to produce faithfulness in his people is so that we might communicate, we might embody, we might reflect the beauty of God's faithfulness towards us. To display the, o- the overarching faithfulness of God so that when we worship, we might be formed to his image, to the image of Christ. And so for just a couple minutes today, as we explore uh, the fruit of faithfulness, as, as, we, as we look at what the Spirit longs to produce on us, in the same way that, that Tyson, that this pastor said, when your child turns 18, what are the steps to get there? In the same sense today, what I want to look at is I almost want to look at, 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 begin with how we see God's faithfulness played out. I want to look at almost the last page so that we might return and look at how we've seen God's faithfulness lead up to this final promise. And what we see in 2 Corinthians is this. For no matter how many promises God has made. They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us, that we respond, we agree to the glory of God. Now it's God who makes both us and you. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He says, it's God who makes us both stand firm in Jesus. He's anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I just want to double click right here for all the promises God has made. God is faithful for all the promises he's made. They are yes in Christ. That Jesus is the culmination, is the proof, is the final word of God's faithfulness. That God's faithfulness finds its culmination, its completeness in the person of Jesus. And it begs the question, as, as, we, as we look at here, as we look at God's promises, they're all yes in Jesus. I kind of almost want to walk back a timeline, a timeline on how we see these things play out. So I want to I wanna almost do a flyover through, through a story. Now, there's this idea called biblical theology. You can write that down, sound smart, and impress your friends. But biblical theology is simply taking a thread and pulling it through Scripture and seeing all the ways in which we see a certain theme, a certain concept, a certain idea played out through the entire story of Scripture. Because the story of the Bible is not just a collection of random stories and ideas, but it's God's story where he draws these themes, draws his salvation and his promises and his truth from beginning 
too. And what I want to look at first is the promise back in the first pages of scripture that God makes. In Genesis 12, you've heard the name Abraham. He makes this promise to Abraham. And this is what he says. He picks this man named Abraham and he he makes this, this promise with Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. He says, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is, this is God's path. This is the thread of how he is going to redeem people. That sin has entered the picture. We have separated ourselves from God. That now mankind has this longing in their hearts, this separation from God, that we are now under the curse of sin. But God wants to bless us. He wants to reconcile. And what he's going to do is through Abraham, the promise he makes through Abraham is not some random dude's going to have a kingdom one day, but through you, all people will be blessed. What we all long for, what we long to be restored, what we long to be healed, what has been broken, that longs to be redeemed, it'll come through this blessing. This is the promise that God has made. Now he's going to make a covenant, a promise with Abraham. He's going to shake on it, right? Almost this picture of making the deal with Abraham. If you're not familiar with this word covenant, it's almost not just a contract, not just a promise, but marriage is probably the closest picture we have where we are going to commit to one another. It's more than a contract. It's more than a promise, but there's blessings that come with marriage. And if this thing ends, there's pain, there's curses that come along with it. We don't just cut a contract and go our ways, right? So why marriage isn't a contract. It's a covenant. It's a deep-seated promise that we build our lives around. And in, in chapter 15 of Genesis, it's a unique passage, but we see Abraham and God shaking on it. They make a covenant together. They make a promise. Now, the way that this would play out is that, we've said this before, that when, when two parties would make a covenant, would make this agreement, this promise with one another, they would cut up an animal. They would cut up a sacrifice and they would pass between it making this covenant. Almost this picture that if we break this covenant, if we break this promise, if I, if I don't hold up my side of the deal, so to say, may I become like this sacrificed animal. May I, there's blessings and curses. If we, if we stay true to this covenant, there'll be blessing in this covenant. There will be good things that come out of this agreement. But if I break or if you break this promise, may we become like this sacrifice. So every covenant comes with blessings and curses. Now, if you go, go read, I'm not going to read it today when I have time, but read Genesis 15. What happens is this unique kind of mysterious passage that God, in making this promise with Abraham, he, he makes this promise. Through you will come the solution for all people, the blessing for all people. And we're going to shake on it. We're going to make a covenant. Only Abraham, this is so serious. I'm not going to make it with you. So God puts Abraham to sleep and God passes between this animal by himself. That God holds up both ends of the deal. So to say that that if both, both sides hold up their end of the deal, if God holds up the side of the deal with God, that the blessings will come to Abraham. But if, it, if, if, this, if the promise is broken, if both sides of the deal aren't held up, if Abraham fails, then the curses will come on God as well. And we see the author of Hebrews explains this. He says this. He hearkens back to this promise thousands of years later. When God made his promise to Abraham, 
Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. God made this deal with himself. God holds up both ends of this deal, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. He was eventually, after waiting and waiting and waiting, and him and his wife Sarah were in old age, that he was given a son, Isaac. Verse 16 says, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. Because God wanted to communicate his steadfastness, communicate his faithfulness. He confirmed it with an oath. He made a covenant. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things, Abraham was changeable. If God made this ultimate covenant to promise all people with Abraham, Abraham would have failed and the promise would have been off. But God chose two unchangeable things, himself and himself, in which it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope that God is faithful as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered for our behalf. Then he makes this covenant, this, he makes this promise, then he shakes on it, this covenant, not with Abraham, but with himself, where he will absorb the, the curses, but Abraham may enjoy the blessings, that all people through this promise may enjoy the blessings. And then we see this unique passage, which you've probably heard in, in ethics class in college in Genesis 22, where God tests Abraham. He's made this promise, made this covenant, now he tests Abraham. Abraham finally, after waiting and waiting and waiting, was given Isaac. And there's this unique passage where God wants Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It may be perplexing to you, it may make you uncomfortable, that's okay, but there's all these hints of Jesus in here that point us towards Jesus. That we see Abraham and Isaac going up this hill, and Abraham is gonna sacrifice his son, Isaac. And what we see is that Abraham, this is explained later in scripture as well, has deep, deep faith in God's promise. He has faith in God's faithfulness, that God has promised this line through Abraham, through Isaac. And so Abraham doesn't know what God's doing. He doesn't know how this is going to play out, but he knows that God is faithful. So when Abraham is going up this hill with Isaac to sacrifice him, he tells his servants, we'll be back because he knows that God is faithful. And they get to the top of this mountain, and right before he's gonna sacrifice Isaac, God stops him, and God provides a sacrifice. He provides a ram. And this place where God provided is called Mount Moriah, which literally means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide, and eventually, this is so important, there'll be twists and turns and thousands of years of people wandering in the desert and God's people, the Israelites, that they will come back to this place and it's on this mountain, on Mount Moriah, on the Lord will provide mountain, where eventually a lamb would be sacrificed and the ultimate test would be fulfilled in this lamb. You follow the story of, of the Old Testament. You follow the story of God. And there's these different promises he makes with his people. The covenant at Mount Sinai that I, will, that I will bless you and you will be a people if you keep up your end of the deal. And time and time again, we see the people of God being unfaithful. Time and time. That's what this old story of scripture is. Is God's people being unfaithful while he continues to be faithful. 
He continues to make his promise. In the book of Isaiah, I just read this this week, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. That just as in that original promise, all people will be blessed through you. He continues that promise that you will be a light for all people. And eventually we come to the Savior. We come to Jesus. And he was not who people expected. And eventually God on, on Mount Moriah, on that same, that same place where the city of Jerusalem would be built, where God would provide, eventually God would provide himself in Jesus. Because of this covenant, because of this covenant, God would absorb, absorb the penalty for this broken covenant, for all of God's people's shortcomings, for all of their sin, for all the times that Abraham and his people would fail, that someone had to pay for that sin, and they would make sacrifices that were a picture pointing towards an ultimate sacrifice in Jesus, where all the curses of the covenant would be absorbed. And we, through Christ, would absorb the blessings that we see God from page one to the end being faithful, that his faithfulness all comes to Jesus, that for all the promises of God, they are fulfilled in Christ, that we, we're promised that a king will rule and reign in justice and in peace. It points to Jesus. That in the Old Testament, that, that the people of God couldn't follow the rules, couldn't follow the rules. They had hearts of stone and God promised to eventually put put a, a tender heart in them. It points to Jesus because Jesus will give us new life through his spirit. That there's this promise that will separate our sin as far as the east is from the west. And who's going to do that? God will. Through who? Through Jesus. When Jesus gives us his righteousness and separates our sin, bearing it, nailing it to the cross and bearing it in the grave. That what we saw, that he will make a way for all people. All nations will be blessed. There will be light to all Gentiles. And this will come through Jesus. That Jesus will invite all people to the table. That we are promised to be blessed. That Paul says every spiritual blessing is found in Christ because God made a promise not to curse but to bless. That all of the promises of God, they weren't just thrown out there to figure out, but they found their fulfillment in Jesus. You could say it this way, that God is faithful to us. He is faithful to us through our sin, in light of our sin. That we see the promise of God persevere through our wickedness, through our rebellion, and through our sin. That Jesus is the proof of God's faithfulness. And that we become the beneficiaries of God's faithfulness, which produces a faithfulness in us. And as we look, this is just one thread of God's faithfulness about what he said, this promise he made to Abraham thousands and thousands of years ago that were fulfilled in Jesus. That we see this happen time and time again. And how does this grand story filter in the faithfulness in our daily lives? How does in looking in light of this story, in light of this gospel, produce faithfulness in us? Where and how does this show up? And I just quickly want to look at a few things today. I think first and foremost, it shows up. We see the faithfulness of God show up in our own lives. That he produces faithfulness through us. When we are faithful to God through the small things. We, when we fulfill our promise to God through the small things in life. Jesus kind of teaches, he tells an obscure parable in, in Luke 16. And at the end he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And I love that he, he, he kind of shows us the importance of the small things. 
And how oftentimes it's the small things where faithfulness really finds its home, really shows up. And it's the upside down nature of his kingdom. Do you want to be a leader? He calls us to serve in obscurity. Do you want power? He says, humble yourself. He says, if you want to be the first one, he says, be the last. That's, that's truly where, where, where our life is found. And this, you know, sometimes you watch the NBA, the LeBron James story started from the bottom. Now we hear, you know, I was in obscurity. Now I found my way. That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, embrace your humble beginning so that one day when you're at the top, you'll see how far you came. That's not what God's saying. But by, by being faithful to God through the small things, we're seeing that God values the small things, the insignificant things, the despised thing. In 1 Corinthians, it says, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Jesus Christ was, was born in a small backwoods town to the people of Israel who weren't the mightiest people in the world. They weren't the greatest kingdom throughout the story. They're kind of this ragtag wandering group of people. And Jesus did a simple job. He was a carpenter. And the scripture tells us there's nothing about his appearance that would have caught your attention. That much of, of Jesus' worldly life, earthly life, was, was simple. It was small. Lived in obscurity for 30 years of his life. And being faithful in the small things that God has called us to is important because it's often in these things where he does his work. That when we see the faithfulness of God, it produces a faithfulness in us, which first and foremost shows up in the seemingly insignificant things. Which I would ask you today, are you, are you present to where God has you? Are you always trying to get past this, this current season, get out of where, you're, of where you are? Maybe you're living and it feels like you're living in obscurity or monotony or a place of insignificance, but God is faithful to us through all of it and calls us to be faithful to him in the midst of it. Because it's valuable to him, these small things. The way that the faithfulness of God kind of shows up in our life is when we are faithful to one another uh, through, through strife, through small things, but through strife. And when we talk about faithfulness, maybe relational faithfulness is probably what comes to the forefront of our minds. And, and this conversation may be, may be hard for you because you have, you've been unfaithful in, in some way maybe maritally, sexually, maybe it's verbally things that you've said. Maybe it's, there's a, a promise that you have failed to keep. Maybe you've let those down that you, that you love. And, and this conversation of faithfulness is just honestly hard for you because you feel like you've, you've been in unfaithful. And for some of us, there's maybe certain relationships that we don't think about the context of being faithful to, right? Maybe our boss or certain members of your family or maybe certain relationships that maybe we'd even say, they don't deserve my faithfulness. And I would, for the follower of Jesus, I would say, be, be wary of relationships that just simply become pragmatic. That, oh, I'll be faithful to them because they bring me happiness or joy or they're easy to love. That our, our faithfulness to one another, our faithfulness to those hard family members, our faithfulness in relationships is, is an act of worship to the God who was first and foremost faithful to us. And I think one of the primary ways that our faithfulness shows up in the way that we are faithful to our, our church community, to our family. And I acknowledge before I say any of this that there could be a lot of church hurt. You know, there could, be, there could be a lot of that pain that's caused by the family of God. I think oftentimes, because the church is a family, we've had pain and disappointment in our own families. And so we think we'll come to the family of God and this will be the perfect family. And then you show up and 
just as messed up as your family is. And so I, I just acknowledge the church hurt, but some of my, my heroes are, are, are the people who are faithful to the mission of God in a given community over the long haul and who serve the church, who serve children, who are steadfast pillars of the faith for long amounts of time. Those are my heroes. There's many people here who have shaped and formed me, who my relationship with Jesus, I can attest, is because of the faithfulness of a lot of different people. And we, we, see, we see the faithfulness of God show up and we are faithful to one another. Bonhoeffer, we, we said this a couple years ago, he said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who love, loves those around them will, com, com, will create community. That there is a faithfulness to the, to the people that God has placed us with in our church family. And let's be honest, they're not always the people that we would have dreamed of hanging out with. Sometimes we confuse our friend group with our church family, right? That our, our friend group is people that we picked, people that we like because they're like us, Right? And that's great, and those people are in our church community, but our greater faithfulness to the community is not based on our affinity or who we like, but it's based on God's faithfulness to us and the community that he has put us in. Jesus says in John 13, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, if you're faithful to one another. That when we are faithful to one another in our relationships, that we reflect the faithfulness of God. Think about this for just kind of the moment for the world that we're in. That how does the faithfulness of God play out in our day-to-day faithfulness? How does the Spirit want to produce this in our lives? Think this, when we are faithful to the gospel through secularism. Now, I want to, I want to define that because it feels like a left turn. But when we are faithful to the gospel, to the story of Jesus, to the faithfulness of God, when we are faithful to that story, through secularism, through our ever-changing culture that we find ourselves in. Secularism is, is simply this. It's managing life apart from God. It's a way of navigating life and truth and reality apart from the reality of God. And whether it's the ever-changing moral norms of our culture, or whether it's using worldly means of power and control to get what we think Jesus wants, the temptation is to get the Jesus stuff by the ways of the world. That's secularism. One author says we want the kingdom without the king. We want peace and we want freedom and we want kindness and we want love and we want all these things. But we maybe don't really want Jesus. Or we don't really want to do it his way. We want to do it our own way. And this shows up on every side of the political spectrum, of the moral spectrum, in all the different ways. And one pastor Eugene Peterson talks about this idea of ways and means. Ways and means. He basically says the way of Jesus is just as important as the end. That's discipleship. Jesus wants certain things for our world. He calls us to live in a certain manner. And the way in which we get there is just as important as the end. Peterson says we cannot follow the way of Jesus, but then do it in any old way that we like, right? That we are called to faithfulness, faithfulness to the gospel in both the truth of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. What I mean is this, that we are called to be faithful to the truth of the gospel. This is, this is called orthodoxy, right? That for thousands of years, there are, core, there are lots of secondary and third things that we would disagree on all throughout church history. But there are core things that are essential to the faith. 
that, that God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That sin has separated us from God. That man is sinful. That Jesus was God incarnate and that he resurrected from the dead and that he is going to return and that he's going to make all things new and that the scriptures are the way that he has communicated his word to us. These are unchangeable truths that the scriptures all through New Testament call us to be faithful to, to that truth. But we are also called time and time again, Paul almost reminds the church at the end of his letter and throughout his letters, not just to be faithful to the truth, but to be faithful to the spirit of Christ. Not just to the end, but to the ways and the means to the end, by the Jesus way. To represent his character, to represent his humility, his kindness, his love for the other. The way that we communicate his truth. We have a faithfulness to orthodoxy, to truth, in the same way that we have a faithfulness to the character and the spirit of Christ. We see this play out. Paul, Paul says in, in Philippians 1, He's kind of talking to the Philippians. He's in prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. He's in prison. He said, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel and my pain and my suffering and my inconvenience. I'm being faithful to this message of the gospel. And he says, as a result, it's become clear to the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. That, that the whole palace guard, everybody who worked for this prison, for, the, for serving the king, that they saw that this guy, Paul, was in chains because he was faithful to the gospel. And he says, because of my chains, because of my faithfulness to the gospel, he says, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That Paul's willingness to accept the situation he was in, to maintain faithfulness in his, in his imprisonment to the gospel, was an encouragement to the brothers and sisters, which leads us here, and I want to end with this. That in light of the faithfulness in God, in light of his promises, in light of all his promises being found in Christ, that that shows up in our lives when we are faithful to God through suffering. There may be nothing more potent and powerful than reflecting the faithfulness of God in our lives than when we suffer. It's when our faithfulness to God and when his faithfulness to us shows up so clearly. We, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but James writes, Consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, when you suffer. Because you know that the testing of your faith, your faith is being tested. That it produces perseverance, endurance, resilience. Let that perseverance finish its work in you. Don't cut it short. Let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. My friends, what God wants to grow in you, the main thing God wants to grow in you, the most important, most important jewel in our lives, his deepest concern and desire for us is our faith in him. It's not your passion and purpose. It's not your comfort. It's not your well-being or your happiness. Those are all byproducts, possibly, sure. But the ultimate thing that God wants to produce in you is faith, is reliance on him, is trust in him, is an undoubtable security to the story of the gospel. That's what he wants to produce in you. And we will grow in faithfulness as we hold more and more tightly to our faith, and it will be tested. Do not be surprised when these things come. 
Consider it joy when these things come because it's the testing of our faith that produces a perseverance that goes deep and deep that produces a more and more reliant faith on Jesus. Reliant hope on Jesus. A reliant trust in Jesus. As part of my sermon prep this week, I I watched a movie I heard about called A Hidden Life. It's the true story of a man named Franz Joggenstadter. I don't know how you say his name. But he was an Austrian farmer during World War II. And when, when Nazi Germany had invaded Austria, these, these, these men were required to, to go into service to Hitler. And part of that was to take uh, uh, an oath of allegiance to Hitler. And this man, Franz, in the story, he's just a simple man. He's not a political revolutionary. He's not an insane. All he was was a man who was faithful to Jesus. That him and his wife were faithful to Jesus, to the way of Jesus, to the promises of Jesus. And even when his country, and even when the church, the Catholic church at the time, even when they compromised, even out of fear, they compromised to Hitler and turned a blind eye that he said, I'm not going to do it. And people were like, you're, you're, you're stupid. Just go into non-combative service. Just do what you have to do. You have a family, man. Like, what are you doing? And he says, I can't deny, I can't deny my conscience. I have to stay faithful to Jesus. He said, I simply have to say no. And at the end, this is a true story. At the end of the movie, he, I guess, watch the movie. Cover your ears if you don't know how it ends. But he's beheaded at the end of the movie for his faithfulness to Jesus. He wasn't trying to start a political revolution. He wasn't trying to change the world. He was simply being faithful to the one who was first faithful to him. And now you can buy the letters that him and his wife wrote back and forth when he was imprisoned. And he says this. He says, I would not exchange my small, dirty cell for a king's palace if I was required to give up even a small part of my faith. He said, disciples of Jesus must learn to perceive the suffering of their master as unavoidable and apprehend the religion of Jesus as the religion of the cross that we are faithful to God through our suffering and through that what Jesus wants to produce in us is a faith, that this man had a faith like I will probably never experience. And I think of different individuals through our own church body that are walking through seasons of suffering and what I see in the midst of it is a faith being produced that is deeper than what they entered into this suffering with. Paul writes to his intern Timothy, And he says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, if we persevere, we will also reign with him. This might not sit with us well, but he says, if we deny him, he'll also deny us. He's simply saying, if you don't want to be part of this, don't be part of it. He'll turn us over to our sin. He said, do what you want to do. If you don't want me, it's okay. If we deny him, deny us. But look what he says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because you may be listening today and you're like, that's cool, Aiden. I have been unfaithful in so many ways. I've dropped the ball. I've screwed up to God, to my marriage, to my children, to my church community. I have been unfaithful. And the hope for you is that in the reality is that the Lord wants to continue to produce faithfulness in you. And the only way that we can stand back up and continue 
to pursue that end is to know that God has first and foremost been faithful to us even when we are unfaithful, that he remains faithful. Because he didn't, he made this promise with himself. He shook hands with himself and we become the beneficiaries of the promise that he has made. That the promises of God are unshakable and they are fulfilled in Christ. So in your unfaithfulness, in your wickedness, rebellion, and sin, because of God's faithfulness, we can confess, we can stand up, and we can continue to pursue Jesus and continue to let him produce this fruit in us. Not because we got all the answers together, not because we finally became worthy, but because he is faithful. And so Jesus, this morning, I pray that you would produce this fruit in us. That we would be faithful, not just because it's a good trait to have, but that we would be faithful because, Jesus, you first and foremost have been faithful to us. And so we cling to you this morning, Jesus. I pray that, that you might help us to grasp and understand that all the promises of God, to never leave us or forsake us, to bless us, to give us a king, to lead us, to give us a new heart, that all these promises are found in Christ. And so, Jesus, I pray that we as a people might abide more deeply in you and that you might produce the fruit of your spirit through us. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.